Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-host, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelicone. And tonight we will be covering the top five horror B movies of 1983. This is our fourth episode in a series covering all of horror B movies from the 1980s. So, Frank, in 1983, I'll give you some credit here is that they're starting to get better to me. <laughs> they're still not great, right. but they're starting to get better. And they're, they're starting to get different. Some of I these movies say. are good movies. I, no, no, no. no. Hmm. But uh, hear me out. All right. Is that they're starting to actually get a little bit more cerebral, I think, at times, as opposed to just kind of these... By the book slasher movies. Yes. Yeah. So there's and there's and, and they're different movies that are starting to like kind of cre- creep into still that B level movie in the horror genre though. So they're not all kind of the yeah. same cookie cutter type uh, plots and those kind of things that are going on. So yeah, I, I I'll legitimately say overall I enjoyed myself with these five movies um, uh, this time. So. It, I don't think I was wrong, and maybe it is just my taste and nostalgia, but it's starting to, as they approaches the mid-80s, I think the list to me start to, these movies start to get better Yeah, uh, as they go along. Um, so I wanted to ask you, was there anything in 83 that doesn't make the list? So the number one movie would have been The Hunger. Okay. Um, uh, David Bowie, Catherine Deneau vampire mm-hmm. movie. Right. <clears throat> but it's not really a B movie to me. Like it's a little too much of like an A list film. Um, although fantastic movie, if you ever had the chance to see it, if you like vampire movies, uh, there's a Paul Nashi, who's a I think he's Spanish or maybe South American director. Um, movie called Panic Beats, which is about a knight like killing people, like a knight, like, like a knight armor. in armor. Yeah, like is he's... it the Middle Ages or is no? It... It's the ghost of. I can't remember the exact plot. It might be like imagined or them trying to trick somebody, but basically somebody in full armor with like a morning star and a sword, like galloping around and killing people. Um, I, I, I love it. I think it's a great movie, okay. but it's not a good movie at all. Um, there's a alien ripoff called extra XTRO <clears throat> that came out this year. That's um, you would you would know the the cover of the box if you saw it. like you've seen the cover of the box a hundred times in video stores. Um that's okay, but it's it's really not great. Um Cujo can't kinda came close to, but I think Cujo's a little boring. Um and then Thriller came out this year, and Thriller is probably like it was just a little too short and there's really not much to talk about, like even the long form version of Thriller that Landis did. Um, but really like a, you know, seminal moment, I think, in our childhoods is the first time you see that thriller video. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it really does like pay homage to um, more of the idea of like the, the the 40s and 50s horror movies, like the werewolf movies, and even like some of the Hammer stuff with the zombies and Night of the Living Dead. Um, you know, Jackson was a pretty big fan of horror movies, but didn't want him to have like the Satanistic he was afraid of like them being portrayed as Satanistic. So, um, and Vincent Price doing the voiceover. I mean, thrillers, yeah. uh, thrillers pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, honestly, it's weird because I'm not a big fan of John Landis. Like, I don't really like American werewolf either in London or Paris. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not really a huge fan of Landis, but I like thriller a lot. So, yeah. um, and yeah. that's about it. Yeah. Really, the, the the hunger was the one I struggled struggled with the most because I I loved that movie. Um, I just I couldn't like find it 
to classify it as a B movie. Although I guess really then like some of the other movies on this list don't necessarily qualify either, but they felt more in the vein of like B horror than the hunger does. The hunger is more art house. I don't know. Hunger is a great movie. You should see the hunger. I, 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 I think I agree with that. I mean, I, I can't see the hunger being classified as a B movie whatsoever. Oh, there's also, um, fuck house on sorority row, I think is this year too. And that's another one that, um, I really like, and for like the titillation, I don't, I don't even know if I would call it horror, but chained heat is this year as well. Hmm. Um, chained heat is not a good movie, but it's funny. I do know that XTRO cover box art. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you rented movies in the 1980s, you yeah. saw the the extra. I think that's how you say it. I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah, I never seen it, but I remember that box being in the movie. Jaws King. 3D is this year too, which is possibly the worst Jaws movie. And that's 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 a tough title to take, but Jaws 3D is a terrible, terrible. What's the movie. second like worst? Like Jaws four, probably. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I like Jaws 4. Right. That's the one that I grew up with the most. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up with Jaws and Jaws 2. It was always on HBO. You and I disagree about Jaws, though, so... I don't really care for right. Jaws. Yeah. It's because you're wrong. <laughs> so anyway. I mean, I'm very scared of water. Like, I mean, like, things being in the water and stuff like that. Like, I, I find the ocean terrifying, but I, I just don't find the idea of Jaws right. scary. I- I- we had a pool when I was a kid and we lived in Baltimore. And actually, we lived up here. But in my formative years in Baltimore, we had a above-ground pool. Mm-hmm. And Jaws and Creature from the Black Lagoon made me terrified to go into the pool. Were you stupid? Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I was... It's like, there's not going to be a shark in the pool. How there's, old were there's you? There's not going to be a fish man in the pool How either. How old were you? Oh, like four, oh, probably. okay, never mind. I thought you were talking about <clears throat> older. <clears throat> no, no, no. Okay. Although, when I would get in the pool... I would pretend to be um, Poseidon from Clash of the Titans, and I would go under and like pretend to like let loose the Kraken, like I would like blow all the water out because that was the thing I remembered about him. Is he would like he went uh-huh. in the water, he's like and, like all the water bubbles out of his right. mouth, and then the gates open and the Kraken like comes mm-hmm. out and he like looks all amazed. And I would reenact that scene because I was in love with Clash of the Titans when I was a little kid. Gotcha. That's very much of a Larry Gasper movie, I think, yeah. that I wouldn't it's, care for. It's going to make a list someday, but I don't know what list it makes. Is Harry Hamlin in that? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. If, do you want to do best Harry Hamlin movies? I mean, <laughs> there's one. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> okay, I don't want to get off topic. Yeah, right. I, uh, talk about Harry Hamlin. but <clears throat> Veronica Mars. Yeah. He's good in Veronica Mars. Though. I he, is. Veronica Mars. he is. He's really creepy in Veronica Mars. Yeah. Yeah. That, Okay, uh, so do you just want to go ahead and get started? Yeah, we can move okay. into it. So, number five on your list for 1983 is The Keep, directed by Michael Mann, starring Scott Glenn, Alberta Watson, Jurgen Procknell. Jurgen. Jurgen. Mm. Jurgen Procknell. Uh, Gabriel Byrne, Ian McKellen, and Robert Prosky. Yep. It has a 40% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 43% from audiences. Deservedly so. <laughs> Did you want to tell us a little bit about this movie? And maybe it's history, too. Um, right. And, so, and what you like about it. group of Nazis are occupying this small town um, towards the end of World War II when the Nazis are at the peak of their power. Um, they decide to establish their base camp in this um, ancient keep that's like, at the end of whatever the the village um 
they're warned away from staying in the keep because terrible things can happen to people. Um, a couple of the Nazis are greedy and try to like steal these crosses that are set into the wall and they unleash this ancient evil that kills them. Um, then this dude appears like that's going to fight the, I don't know. Basically the Nazis are bad. Nazis really sanction evil dude comes across the ocean. Oh, they get some professor who's like an expert on it. And he comes to like help. I don't know. The movie makes no sense. The movie makes limited sense because there's like three hours of the movie that were cut out. Um, is that right? It's like 200. Three, three hours weren't cut out. It was originally three hours. It's a three and a half hour movie and you get a 90 minute version. So. Right. So. Roughly half the movie that's just Two missing, hours are cut out. Like right. exposition. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, it's kind of goofy in a lot of ways. But it, it looks amazing. Like I love yeah. the way that Michael Mann films that movie. Yeah. Um, I really like Jurgen Prock now a lot. I, I think that he's really good in it. Um. Gabriel Byrne is fine. Uh, Ian McKellen is fine. Like, there's good performances. More than anything, I just love the way the movie looks. Hmm. Um, I think that for being, like, an early 80s creature-based horror, I don't think the creature is terribly goofy. Like, I think that it's okay in the way that it looks. Um, to the point where I, it's almost like... There's sort of, like, a cult following that's built up around, like, the way this creature looks. Like, if you look, there's like fan art and stuff of this thing. Um, so the version that, that we're talking about, the one that's available to watch off of, I think prime is where I saw it or maybe to me. Do you know where it was? No, it's not on. Oh, well, I'm sure it's on prime probably to rent. At least it was, I, there was nowhere free, right? You, I think pro- I you probably it. have access to it through one of your yeah, 25 maybe, things that you know. subscribe to, but I watched it somewhere on yeah. my television. I, I watched on Google play and rented it. Yeah. Um, so the version that we're talking about is like 93 minutes long, yes. I think. Yeah. Um, and is an incredibly pared down version of Michael Mann's original, which as you know, we said before is 205 minutes and the 205 minute version fills out this incredible amount of like backstory and has character development and builds a relationship between um, what's the hero's name. in the I can't remember. It's Scott, like, Scott Glenn. Right. But no, the character, <laughs> I don't, um, I yeah anyway so it builds like his backstory and it builds this love story between him and the daughter and it makes it a complete movie but that's not the version that you're going to be able to see so what I really like about this movie and I I, I think sometimes that it's really important to see a like a good director's failures in a lot of ways to see you know where where certain ideas come from. I mean, the way that he films scenes, like you can see things that come later that he takes out of it for like Miami vice and Heat, and even though they're completely different, you know, genres, like it's really cool to see somebody like Michael Mann, who's primarily known for his crime direction to do something like this. It's this horror fantasy, almost like Nazi fetish horror movie. Um, I love the way the keep looks like I like the the imposing nature of it from the outside. I like the way it looks on the inside where it's just kind of these like hollow rooms that are designed to keep this thing in. Um, I, I really like the idea in movies of like the ancient evil that gets unleashed on the world um, through the folly of man. Like I think that that's very like Lovecraftian in its own way. And 
it's a really cool idea and it's 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 an absolute failure of not an absolute failure it's not like abject but it's pretty close um the 90 some minute version of it that the studio forced him to release but in that failure like i think you see a lot of cool ideas and i i i think it's fun to watch um yeah the, the character's name is glaken trismegistus or right. something <laughs> right yeah it's a ridiculous name. It is. And he makes sense, like, in the context of he, the long version of the right. movie. I, I I have not seen the long version. I read about the long version and, like, the, the novel that it's based off of. Yeah. So the all long that ver- stuff. So if I filled it all in. but The long version is the first version I saw. And I actually saw this movie for the first time as a bootleg mm. um, that I bought from some, like, comic book show for probably, like, $20 on some, like, EP VHS or whatever with, like, printed box art. How did the long version get released, do you know? Oh, like, I have no idea. Okay. How did anything? I mean, so there was, we, we, we've talked about this, I think, before. There was a company called Video Search of Miami mm-hmm. that used to have this amazing talent of finding these things that were unavailable for release in the United States, but they would find them somehow. Right. And so you would spend like 20 to $30 plus like $400 shipping and handling to import these terrible like plastic clamshell boxes with black and white photocopied art usually. Um... But that's how I saw, like, the original Make Them Die Slowly, um, Cannibal Holocaust, mm. um, the Guinea Pig series. Like, there's a bunch of stuff that I saw that now you would take for granted because everything's available everywhere. But back then, it was really difficult to find it. So, I knew about The Keep, and I knew there was a longer version, and I bought it through that and watched it on VHS. And it actually is a better movie, and it makes a lot more sense. But, man, it's a long movie. Like, three hours is a long time to watch this plot develop. Um, and I think you can get enough of a gist of what man was going for in the 90-some minute version, but it doesn't really make it good. Like, it just kind of... You're expected to assume a lot of things, like, as they happen. Agreed. Which I, I assume is probably, like, one of the big, biggest criticisms of it's it. Ab- it's, the, yeah, it's absolutely the number one criticism, is that the, uh, that the script of the story just don't really make any sense. Right. And they don't. And But it's not Michael Mann's fault. Like, it's not the fault I, of the movie. I'm actually going to, def- I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm actually going to defend it in some and say, like, if you can't put in, fill in, like, a lot of the pieces to this on your own, I don't think, I don't think you know how to watch it, watch a movie. Agreed. Like, I, I don't think, I mean, I, I think this movie could use some character development. Right. More than plot development. I think those two things could go hand in hand. It, I think you need another 15 or 20 minutes of this movie and it's fine. Yeah. You know what? So Glicken or whatever, like you develop that character a little more, yeah. he make fit him better into the plot where it makes more sense. Right. Why him and the girl fall in love and why sure. he's doing what he's doing. And it actually probably bumps it up like to a higher degree in terms of its. It bumps it up to one of the probably better fantasy movies of the 1980s yeah, for like kids, I think. Yeah. But, um, it's a little dark for kids, but it's still yeah. like a good. I mean, but it's still good. I mean, but it's beautiful to watch. Like I, I love the yeah. way he films. I, I like the. I always like like the misty mountain village thing. Mm-hmm. Like that's really well done. Um, man is like oddly fetishistic on the Nazi stuff, which is weird. Um, I thought that was very interesting though. Like rewatching this again for the first time since I was a kid and like really young. I was actually really involved because I didn't remember a lot of it, but it's like I was actually really involved with the plot for the first 40 minutes. Right. Until it completely falls apart and like, you know, yeah. Gleekin comes in and all that shit starts. But um, 
but even then, I understood what was going on. Sure. I got the plot. But I actually thought the Nazi stuff was some of the more interesting stuff. It is. Uh, especially with uh, Jürgen Prochnow's, like character. Um, I thought that was some of the more interesting stuff. It's interesting because I don't know if today... Because Jürgen Prochnow is pretty sympathetic as that character, as the yeah. commander or whatever sure. he is, of, of the, the platoon. I don't know if today you could make a movie with Nazis where you make a Nazi sympathetic necessarily i don't know if that would fly in today's climate um at least not without like a lot of like immediate criticism i i i I agree that it would probably be a sensitive thing but at the same time in the in in that universe it it makes a lot of sense because they certainly show gabriel byrne as like the stereotypical nazi like you know just bloodthirsty and you know, no morals whatsoever. And where proc now is the, he doesn't really want to kill people if he doesn't have to like there, there yeah, is true. And I, I think they have a good balance. And I thought that's what made it interesting was that you actually had this Nazi who was under like the Reich, but at the same time, didn't necessarily believe in all the bullshit that went along with it. The other thing that I really, that I really like about this movie too, is the idea that there's just this, like endlessness in the middle of this keep like Mm -hmm. when they i'm really uncomfortable with tight spaces and when they when that first guard like shimmies his way down the chute Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of like hanging out in space with nothing and then like half of him comes like it's it's pretty brutal when you first see it like it's kind of unexpected Mm -hmm. um i really like that and i like i i like the creepy idea of like just like nothing you know like an abyss or whatever Yeah. yeah that this thing inhabits because it's trapped there. Um, I don't know if I can recommend the keep. I mean, I think that it's enjoyable enough for people to watch and be entertained by. Which, so what one specific criticism I found uh, from Tim Braden at alternate ending.com uh, was talking about McKellen's performance that for, and I think he watched this. This isn't, uh, this isn't a review from the time period itself. He's watching after the fact, but he's saying that McKellen, considering his reputation, isn't actually very good in this movie. Yeah, I think that's probably true. It's mm-hmm. fine. I mean, I I, 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 I was a little weird. Yeah, right. But I mean, it's not like what you think of when you think of Ian McKellen. I guess. Yeah, I was, I was, I felt the same way. I was like, I, I, to some degree, like I was like expecting more out of McKellen, and it was actually Procknow and Byrne who I thought gave two of the even if burns the stereotype i i thought i thought both of those it was proc now really gave the best performance i thought you know but i'll i would argue that ian mckellen doesn't earn his reputation as a great actor until like the 90s maybe like he's not right yeah you're right some classic Mm -hmm. you know it's not like um like alec guinness or um albert finney or something in this role you know i mean this is a a b-movie actor basically I i i think i don't really know his filmography that well yeah. but i would well, it was a lot of stage work obviously yeah i don't think he was he had been in that many great things at this point what's the uh top five year in proc now movies jesus christ <laughs> I'm, uh, just, I'm just joking with you right i, don't, I have no idea i don't want to get into that uh they were all on usa probably at some point during yeah. the in like, the mouth the of I'm not a huge fan of In the Mouth of Madness, honestly. I think that movie's really, um, 
Really overrated. I just watched uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 last weekend, and Jurgen Prock now is the um, villain in that, the main villain, besides Bridget Nielsen, but he's the, he's the primary villain. Hmm. <clears throat> okay, uh, so yeah, the, the criticism besides McKellen's performance, I, honestly, everybody just mentioned like how the movie made no sense whatsoever, and considering the production of it that you discussed, I don't really see... Um, so as a, a point of reference, The Keep is Ian McKellen's fifth movie. Oh, okay. Um, and he's not in anything good before that. He plays D.H. Lawrence in the movie before this. Hmm. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I overall, I thought it was an entertaining movie, even despite its problems. I, I honestly think you put 15 minutes into it. It's fine the way it is. I don't yeah, think you need a three-hour right. movie to... To, the three-hour version is very difficult to watch. Sure. So yeah, very long. Yeah, yeah. So was Scott Glenn? Do you know? I I don't know this because I I mean I'm, I'm only three at this point and you're not <laughs> that much older. But it's like, do you know if Scott Glenn was like considered like some sort of like sex symbol during this time period? Because hmm. it certainly tries to make him out to like kind of seem that way. And I mean, I always thought Scott Glenn was a weird-looking dude. Hmm. I mean, he's been an urban cowboy at this point, and I think urban cowboy is pretty, pretty notable for being like one of those. Yeah. I don't know, like, like I know that my mom and grandmother used to like make asides about urban cowboy that <laughs> thinking about it now make me kind of uncomfortable. Um, that is that that's not uncomfortable to for to hear you admit, right? <laughs> and I just saw the look of realization cross your face right. as you said. And the right stuff. I mean, he's got a pivotal role in right stuff, so maybe he was a sex symbol, or at least like some kind of... I want to know this now. Like husband surrogate? Mm. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I'll, I'm, I'm I'll have to find out about moderately that. Moderately... Nauseous? <laughs> I'm not, not, not necessarily happy. I'll, I'll, I'll have to ask my mother what right, she I, thinks about it. I do like, not want to ask my mother... <laughs> So, let's talk about Urban Cowboy. <laughs> God, I think they made me go to bed when they watched that one. <laughs> oh. Okay. I don't want to hear anymore now. This now top I'm... five just kind of gets the top, top five worst memories of Frank's childhood. <laughs> top five repressed memories. Uh, well, it's about to get probably more disturbing as we talk about this next movie. Right. So, um, number four on your list is Sleepaway Camp. Mm. Directed by Robert Hiltzik, uh, starring Felissa Rose, Jonathan Tierston, and Mike Kellen. It has an 81% from critics on yeah, Rotten Tomatoes and surprising. a 60% from audiences. So, did you want to go ahead and explain this movie and what it's about and what you like about it so much? So, it's hard to explain, necessarily. Um, it, it's not like, it's, so at its right. core sleepaway camp is a very traditional slasher movie where you don't know who the killer is. Yeah. Um, teenagers at camp in the summer, someone is killing people. Um, there's a young girl who's quiet and who's implied that she's gone through some kind of trauma in her life that has trouble like connecting with people. She's almost like probably what you would call like autistic today um but they just call her like a weirdo or whatever right. in the movie um there's a bookend 
sequence at the beginning where someone had a boating accident, like a young child had a boating accident. Is the two dudes sleeping together at the beginning of the movie, right? Middle of the sh- movie. When they show that? That's the flashback the is the middle. Yeah, that's in the middle of the movie. Um, so there's this weird subtext of... Are they brother and sister or cousins in the movie? Cousins, They're cousins right? in the movie, yeah. So these two cousins, this guy that's like been to sleepaway camp before and is sort of like popular and like was making out with a popular girl the year before mm-hmm. and his cousin and she's like quiet and reserved and kind of backwards and he's just trying to stick up for her and they have this subtext where some family trauma happened um so this this dude that's like the guy's best friend sort of falls in love with the girl and is like all excited to you know he wants to like get to know her and he likes her and he thinks she's cute and the popular girl like hates that so they keep like making fun of her and setting her up to look ridiculous i mean it's just it's a very typical combination of like the 80s like fish out of water mean girls style like teen movie with like a slasher movie and pretty well done i mean i think there's some good characterization of like the kids i think they they seem like real kids and then there's just this weird mix of like pedophilia and awkwardness and the flashbacks that kind of show that you know i don't know they're anyway so all this progresses to the end of the movie when it's revealed that and probably when you see it for the first time, what might be one of the most like shocking endings, like truly, you know, I, I, I think a lot of movies saw this movie and said, oh shit, like we have to be this. Or, you know, it's what you complain about in Mother's Day where it's yeah. like, it doesn't make any sense that the creature jumps out of the woods. Right. So this just like, like punches you in the face because the girl is a boy and they show that she's a boy by having her stand on the beach in like, I don't know, like the most really like uncomfortable, like wide eyed pose with a severed head, a severed head and a knife and her mouth open in a scream where no screams coming out. Right. And a penis. Yes. And then it's implied that what happened is, and really awkward editing for the special effects where it's obvious her body's just kind of hovering over top of an actual boy's body so it's like it's really weird looking like i thought it was a prosthetic did you look that up i don't know i think if you did you did you watch it again this time yeah i did it's it was pretty obvious to me that it's like somehow it was like a boy and then her face is well i don't think it's a real body i think it would have to be like a dummy of some kind yeah that's like a prosthetic it's possible but it's obvious that her head i think has been somehow anyway really uncomfortable to watch and then it yeah, my also... only comment on this movie is what an uncomfortable damn movie right it's true and then it also implies that the reason that she is a boy is because the sister got killed in the boating accident because of the homosexual father and the boy was raised as a girl to compensate for the fact that the homosexual father got the daughter killed yes is sort of what's implied. So it's got some really complex and probably inappropriate, like LGBTQ. Yes. Like uh-huh. it, it approaches it in a way that's the completely backwards from how we would look at like, from like a sociological and psychological perspective. <laughs> Absolutely. Today. Like yes. 100% like yeah. 
the wrong approach to looking at that. Yes. And also making it like a horrific thing and like a, like, you know, a thing where like, this drove this girl crazy to right. kill because she's the killer the entire time. Yes. Like I even failed to mention that because, right, right. <laughs> because you know, yeah, right. Um, I, yeah. And the implication of it all is the fact that she is transgender is the reason that she's a killer. Right. And, and was forced to be transgender because of us, because right. I mean, Cause it's not something you choose. It's something that's forced upon. Right. You. Yes, there's as, a lot of disturbing implications. As a preteen, yes. like it's only been like four or five years right. that she's been a girl, but has been forced to be a girl through possible brainwashing of some kind. I don't know. It's a really, really bad and backwards take yes. on transgender. Right. But one of my favorite horror movies of the 1980s period. Right. Because it's so appalling in a yeah. lot of ways. Like it. I mean, if you grow up watching horror movies, like, there's a certain point where you're just not scared by horror movies anymore. Sure. And you're watching them because you enjoy watching horror movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But the best horror movies are the ones that, like, get under your skin, even sometimes for the wrong reasons, and make you uncomfortable. Like, they force you outside of, like, like where you want to turn away from watching them. I mean, there's a scene, you and I talked about this off air, there's a scene pretty early on in the movie, like, maybe 20 minutes in. Oh, where, yeah, what I texted you about. Yeah, where yeah. the cook of the camp is an obvious pedophile. It's not even implied. He's yeah. talking about the baldies. And yeah. he basically tries to rape a girl and only stops because somebody comes in while he's undoing his belt yes. to, like, rape this girl. Yeah. And he gets murdered. And it honestly is one of the most appropriate murders in any horror movie ever. <laughs> right. Like... You have no sympathy for this guy, but it's such a... You don't have any sympathy for... Any, that's the thing is, like, everybody that works at the camp, mostly, you don't have any sympathy right, for Right, yeah, them. they're all like, pretty Like, all terrible. the people that die are yeah. mostly unsympathetic. Yeah, because then there's, like, the older man that's, like, the... The camp, camp counselor. He, or, like, the owner of the, the camp. O- the owner, yes, the, ca- the owner of the camp. having sex with a girl that's probably 15 or 16, maybe? Sure. And, and he's, he's also the one that's trying to hide these murders. Oh, right. So he could keep yeah. the camp open and keep making money. It's just yeah. it's so much uncomfortable stuff in this movie. It's got a very... For being filmed, in even in the early 80s, it's got a very 70s feel in the way the film stock is and... The way that the shots are composed and the closeness of it, like it feels like those early Friday the 13th movies mm. in that respect of like the first person kills and stuff. But I mean, it's number four on this list because the three movies that come after this are better movies, like mm. objectively better. Mm. But we when when I was in my late teens, early 20s, <clears throat> when people would ask us like, oh, what horror movie should I watch? We would always trick people into watching sleepaway camp and we would sit there and watch sleepaway camp with them for the first time where it's like three or four people with one person who's never seen it and just you're sitting there like like side eye like waiting you all did that to me oh right well surprise (laughs) um but yeah it's just it's look it's not it's not a it's not a good movie it definitely is not a good examination of you know trans people or right or or like the 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 implications about the the father's homosexual liaisons and stuff like that right in terms of how that informs all of this and it's like the whole thing is just it fucked in that in a lot of ways it's like 
like an it, ultra. If it were so absurd, you'd be you, you could get like angry, real easy. right? Yeah, right. It, it's almost like an ultra, like religious right take on all those things, and this is what those things like homosexuality and transgender. Ed, Ed Gonzalez of Slant has a really funny review that's worth reading, but he um he makes the point. One of the points that he makes is that it's it's a it's outside the norm in the sense that it doesn't um it what did he say it's i think he says it doesn't have a single tit in it he says actually the camera focuses way too much on prepubescent boys a lot of times and it's like after a while you start thinking like what's going on here with this director and you start thinking like maybe like uh what was that one director that used to do that in the late 90s early 2000s um with the what was that uh horror series that he would he directed there was the boys lying on top of the bus like you know in their like oh jeepers creepers jeepers creepers that director right yeah and he was um he ended up i think getting arrested for um child porn no he got arrested for child porn before he made the movie oh before he made the movie okay that's what it was he's the guy that made um uh that terrible movie um Shit, I want to say Casper, but I don't want to like impugn Casper. It's like it's like Casper though. Okay, with the um the albino powder powder. Oh, well, he did right, right, he and did then powder, yeah. It was it was revealed that he was like a convicted pedophile, right? When he made powder, yeah. and then they let him make Jeepers Creepers, right? Jeepers Creepers movies are good though, so so the first two. So he he was wondering if it's like some situation like that, and he says until you get to the end. And you realize that it seems like he'd rather punch a homosexual in the face. And then he doesn't understand. And then he goes on and tries to make sense of the movie from its... Right, it doesn't um, make any sense. Like, sexual politics and stuff like that. And he goes on this, like, long, like, you know, (laughs) trying to examine all these different plot points. And basically comes to the conclusion that we do, pretty much, is that, like... If this weren't so such a ridiculous movie, it would be right. Like, be It'd be really, really offensive. Sure, but it's almost like a fever dream when you watch it. Like it's yeah. just. I'll, I'll say this though: I actually, as a slasher movie, I thought this was better than any of the slashers you've had on any of your list. Yeah, like I said, this is one of my favorite yeah. slasher horror movies. In the, I mean, like probably top five. And I think it's because you actually get real. Ki- I, I think the thing that like, actually makes me find this more interesting is you don't have. 20 and 30 year olds playing teenagers right like late teens in a camp these are actually like real kids and it's actually dealing with real issues of bullying and stuff like that yeah and i i think that's much more interesting than anything in those friday 13th movies but it also makes it a lot more uncomfortable because you know that you're watching shorts agreed like it's 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 amazing that anyone let their children be in this movie right i'll say that like i cannot imagine like being a parent of an actor and like oh yeah like that's go ahead tommy like go ahead and go ahead and take this role but again like i like i understand the sensitivity of like our current day and age and i think that if you can put that aside a little bit and just watch it as a relic of its time i think it's an enjoyable movie like i really i am never disappointed watching sleepaway camp i'm only horrified (laughs) Like every time, so transphobic, homophobic, but still worth checking out. Yeah, absolutely okay. no grasp of actual psychology or how things work in the human brain, but it's 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 a fun ninety minutes. Yeah, 
that you'll never forget ever. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, moving on to number three on your list is Something Wicked This Way Comes, directed by Jack Clayton, starring Jason Robards, Jonathan Price, Vidal Peterson, Diane Ladd, and Pam Greer. Has a 60% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 64% from audiences. That's really weird to me. This one's really low. Did you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so, based on a Ray Bradbury uh, novella, maybe, I guess, or short story. Yeah. Um, of the same name. I think novella. Yeah. Um, young boys live in this small town in the 40s, 20s, early, early 20th century, sometime. I don't know. I'll it, yeah. Um... The one boy is the son of the local librarian who sort of feels kind of embarrassed that his dad is like older and can't really do much. The other boy has an absentee father who's sort of implied to have been a drunk and like a womanizer that's kind of left. Um, the two boys are best friends, although really you never get the feeling they actually like each other during the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um Wandering lightning rod salesman comes into town, like prophesizing this terrible storm and selling lightning rods to people. Um, later, like the next day or like during like the night during this big windstorm, <clears throat> a carnival rolls into town that's led by uh, Mr. Dark, who's played by Jonathan Price. Um, one of my favorite horror villain performances in the 80s. Um, they find out that it's this, it's like a carnival of souls type thing where they're offering all these people their wildest dreams, but they're really like taking their souls and siphoning their energy. Um, Pam Greer is this ancient spider zombie mummy lady um, who helps Mr. Dark and they have a bunch of other people. Um, the central point of the carnival is this Ferris wheel that if you ride it forwards, it ages you. If you ride it backwards, it makes you young. Uh, the boys discover this. They try to warn their parents. Um, the only person that really believes them is the father, the librarian. That's the um, Robard's role. Um, and in the end, they end up beating, you know, the evil. And <clears throat> through the fact that even though he's old, like his knowledge as a librarian helps him. And um, it's a Disney movie. Yeah. It's my favorite kind of Disney movie, like Disney and the late seventies through the mid eighties when they felt like they had to compete and make like a little more, um, not really adult fair, but th- like they made actual horror movies and they made movies that I feel like stuff like the black hole and Mr. Boogity and, um, the glass ghost. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff from this era that are like really good. Like even stuff like, um, escape to witch mountain and stuff like right, that. Yeah. Had, that's, like elements that's good. that were like kind of like, little horror or at least like watcher in the woods i think might be a disney movie um they 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 had this time where they didn't mind making children in peril movies and actually giving like stakes to a movie they were making um or like taking risks in terms of their subject matter and not to get off like topic too much but like the black hole is a good example of that i mean there's like a lot of pretty dark you know philosophical ideas in that movie um for something that was made by the company that would go on to make, you know, Finding Nemo or whatever right. later, or Lilo and Stitch. Um, so 
I saw something wicked when I was maybe like five or six, I think. Maybe seven. It was shortly after it came out, like I saw it. Um, I equate the look and the feel of something wicked to um, Lady in White, which is another one of my favorite uh, 80s horror movies that involve like children. It's more like oriented towards like teens or preteens. Um, love Jonathan Price in it. I think that that performance as Mr. Dark is suave and callous at the same time and menacing while still being like refined. I mean, he's really got a good, I mean, he's obviously like Jonathan Price is a classically trained actor and will go on to like much more acclaim. Sure. Um, the only thing, honestly, the only thing I don't like about this movie really is the two kids themselves, and really the blonde kid with the glasses. I yeah, can't remember. Jim Nightshade, I like the kid that plays. Yeah, Jim Night, Nightshade. Nightshade is fine. Yeah. The other kid is the whiniest, most miserable little bitch, and I just hate him. Yeah, like the whole time, and I don't know why anyone wants to hang out with him. And the only thing I can think is that they're the only two kids in the town, so like Jim Nightshade's got no choice. Um. Even though you later find out that the reason that Nightshade's dad left is because he rescued that kid from dying. So, right. you know, maybe Mr. Nightshade could still be around if they just would have let him, like, drown. Right. Um, I like, I, I really like the menace of the characters in this movie. Like, one of the things that I dislike a lot about later horror movies that are geared towards children is that they always make the villains a joke. Like, you always got to make it like... yeah a comedy element like there's um what's the ogreish guy that gets turned in the little kid's name uh like cricket or something like that i don't know he's like the henchman um in this movie yeah yeah the one that like goes on the on the Ferris oh yeah wheel see, right gets yeah turned into a little kid so you can go like yeah, sure I basically I... take over the uh, school teacher and like right take her soul is menacing and even as a little kid he's a monster you know there's no like like 10 years hence if disney made this movie he would have been stumbling around the stairs or slipping on a banana peel or they would have done something to make you laugh at him but they don't let you laugh at any of the villains in this movie they keep the villains tom fury? huh tom fury is that no doing? tom fury's the, the door tom fury's the um lightning rod star. oh right yeah Tom Fury, that's also another great thing, is this idea that they don't even really touch on, that there's this guy that's almost like the god of lightning. Yeah. This, like, lightning prophet that goes around yeah. and is sort of like their arch nemesis and basically mm-hmm. leads to them, like, defeating, mm-hmm. you know, the evil carnival people in the end. Um, I know that Bradbury had some complaints about it uh, post-production. I know Disney went back and reshot a lot of the special effects. Uh, one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the movie when the tarantulas are like infesting the room and like crawling all over him was apparently a reshoot. Yeah. Um, that the kids hated because like they all like had tarantulas crawling on them for like hours and it caused them to break out, I think, or at least have like allergic reactions. But um, it really like it's got a good feeling of like childlike wonder mixed with like legitimate menace. Mm-hmm. And I love the way it looks. I love the autumnal, you know, like the leaves blowing off the trees mm-hmm. and the wind and like the, like the low heavy sunsets and, you know, the pumpkins and stuff like that. Like just the whole feel of it is very Halloween to me. And 
I don't know. I just, I, I really love it as a movie. I know it's got its flaws and I know it's not yeah. like a perfect movie. But. I, I, yeah. It's really funny. The, when you, when it first starts, you'll remember these, but I don't know how many, I don't know how many listeners will. Um, it's worth looking up. Um, is go back and watch, uh, old Ronald Reagan ads from the early 1980s. Mm. Um, it's morning in, uh, it's right, morning right. in America morning again in America, and those yeah. kind of things. Um, it very much reminds me of like those Reagan ads, like the first like five minutes when it's like the cameras moving through the town and you're seeing the town square and the barber shop, like uh, the 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 lights, the red, white, yeah, and blue, the, the spindle, and then yeah. the the cigar shop Indian, sure. yeah. And it's so, like, it's very... but that's that's one of the things that I love about Bradbury's take on it because it is like an American pastoral, Mm -hmm. you know, it is supposed to evoke that feeling of like, and probably non-existent in reality, like world of, um, small town charm where everyone is like friends with each other and they're all good neighbors. But even that they sort of like push a little bit of menace on because you can tell that like they show the characters that have these, you know, unfulfilled hopes and dreams and they're not all perfectly happy Mm -hmm. and that's why it's so easy when the carnival comes in for them to like seduce them to become you know their puppets and i want to get more about this movie but i do want to ask you real quick because it just crossed my mind this is a nostalgia pick for you to some degree right i mean you really liked it as a child right yeah i still enjoyed it when i watched it um do you think the reason you like needful things so much is in part because it's a very similar story. I mean, I think that Stephen King ripped off Ray Bradbury when he wrote right. Needful yeah. Things. I'm not a huge fan of Needful Things, just so you know. Really? Like, I like the book. I don't okay. like that movie. Oh. It's okay. It's it's. You cheesy. said fairly positive things about Needful Things to me before. I mean, in the grand, like, up to a certain point, like, when you look at Stephen King movies, Needful Things probably, like, top five, but that's not hmm. saying much. Okay. All right. Actually, I don't even know if that's true. I would have to think about okay. that list. All right. Um, um, it's, it's fine. I, you know, you know what I like about Needful Things a lot is I like, um, Max von Sydow yeah. as, um, I can't remember what they call him in the right, movie, yeah. but that, that character and the guy that plays Galt, a, or, Galt or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah was, Will, William Galt yeah. and Gaunt. Gaunt. Yeah. It's Gaunt. And the guy that plays Pangborn too, I think does a good job. Right. At I mean, I, yeah. I love that book up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And the thing I love the most about that book is what I like about something wicked, which is. The idea that there's these characters that in the book are presented as like almost like cookie cutter middle America, you know, small town, just working class people. And King does a great job of like pushing down into like their dark recesses, like their shadow zones or whatever. And I think that even though this is, you know, done for children, so they don't really do as much of it. Sure. They paint it with, like, broad strokes, but they mm-hmm. still, like, explore that. Like, sure. you know, the barber just wants to meet women. Um, what is the t- the tobacconist want? He wants to, like, go on adventures or something. Yeah. Um, the, the barman just wants to, like, run for the touchdown again. Right. You know, he wants his, like, leg and his arm yeah, back. Yeah, and the that's the teacher. That's, the, she wants to... Right, she wants to be young. Them. Like, she used to be so beautiful, right. and she realizes how ugly yeah. she is. And they do that through Nightshade, like, drawing, like... A really funny caricature of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that. And I like the fact that, you know, they don't shy away from that. And again, like, that's 
something to be said for Disney in like the late seventies and early eighties, where they weren't afraid to take a chance and, mm-hmm. you know, make a movie that was a little more daring and a little more risque, I guess. And it's, what are the scenes that stick out to you most in this movie? Um, I love a lot of the scenes at night when they're going through like the woods. Um, there's something about like the wind and trees that gets me, even though I know that those are probably sets like, yeah. um, the leaves blowing through town, uh, that first night when, um, Holloway, right? Is it Will Holloway? Yeah, right. Holloway, so yeah. Mr. Holloway is like yeah. leaving the library and like the winds, mm-hmm. like blowing the leaves through. I like that a lot. <clears throat> I really like those opening, um, when dark first comes into town and like, they keep seeing, um, Pam Greer, like in the block of ice, like in the storefront window. Um, I like all the stuff with fury a lot. Like I kind of like that idea that you don't know why this man is so feared by these people, but he is, um, especially when they're kind of torturing him at the end, trying to get him to like tell them exactly when the storm is coming. One of actually one of my favorite scenes is when, um, dark price is leading the boys and is trying to sell, nightshade on the idea that you're going to be my partner like dark and nightshade or nightshade and dark however you want it you know like you can stay with me and we'll go and it's um the scene you know one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the movie and it it sticks out from when i was a kid too because it made me really uncomfortable is when they're leading the carnival procession through the town when um will and jim are hiding under the grates outside the tobaccoist shop and just the blank looks on the faces of the townspeople that have been like sucked away and like stolen into this carnival. And it's just really like, again, it's, it's menacing and it's like uncomfortable. Sure. And then Jonathan price, like leading that parade and it's just his eyes slowly going back and forth in the crowd because he's searching for the boy yeah it's it's good yeah Yeah, it's really well i think the library scene is probably the best one the library scene is great you're talking about at the end of the movie like the yeah yeah. like when he's ripping the pages out of the book and he's oh my god when he's trying to tempt the father into um taking yeah so that's that that's actually my favorite like price moment in the movie is like you're 23 your whole life's right. in front, like every year is like yeah. gone right now you're like 25 yeah. gone and you're yeah. getting angrier and angrier right. it's, because it's, the it's guy really won't good. accept his gift of youth yeah. to give the boys up yeah it's really good um that's one probably the best sequences actually i'm really surprised that it is so i mean i guess 60 percent isn't like terribly low but no and I'll, I'll be honest top critics had it scored higher usually yeah um so i found I actually found a TV guide review that ends up encapsulating a lot of like the different things I was reading from different people. And uh, it's, it's pretty short. It says that the talents of Jonathan price are wasted in this poor adaptation of Ray Bradbury's tale of fantasy and the supernatural Bradbury's surprisingly bland script, the perfunctory direction and the so, so special effects cripple. What would have been a great movie had director Sam Peckinpah, who had long dreamed of filming the book, been allowed to see it through instead the property was snapped up by disney which promptly sucked the life out of it turning into a scrubbed and innocuous coming of age tale Mm. so i guess the thing i more than anything i'd want you to respond to is do you see that it's been too disney-fied do you think that tv guide review is probably like close to contemporaneous i would imagine right um no 
I mean, not in the perspective of what we view as Disney-fied. Mm-hmm. Like, did Disney redo that Escape from Witch Mountain movie with The Rock? I think they were probably behind it, sure. Like, that movie's they terrible. Have to be. Yes. Yeah. It's a really bad adaptation of that. Mm-hmm. So, to me, that's the Disneyfication of... Right. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't feel it. I, I don't... I think maybe, like, contemporaneously you might have seen that, and especially if you were thinking of Peckinpah, like... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't imagine, like, who is it? Like, Ernest Borgnine or William Holden is, like, dark or something, and <laughs> there's blood shooting out of everybody? Like, that'd be crazy. I, I love Sam Peckinpah. Like, I would... I don't know. I had no idea that he was ever attached to direct that. Yeah, I that was the that was the actually the first I ever um I ever heard of that. Um Jack Clayton's not exactly a scrub necessarily, the director of this. No. I mean, um he has the innocence to his credit. Yeah. Um and, and that Gatsby movie's filmed well. Yeah. Like, the, the innocence the, is okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. No, I really like, it's a movie that's made for kids. Like there, again, like I said, there's some broad strokes they do that I think encapsulate the feeling without going too much in depth, without pulling it too much out of the realm of being like an acceptable movie for a preteen and like young teen audience, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I did see Robar, or the, the character that Robards plays. In the book, he was supposed to be 54. And I'm assuming... They don't mention his age at all, do they, in the movie? Did I miss that? I don't think they do. I want to say it's implied that he's somewhere in his 50s. Oh, my God. Robards looks like he's in his 70s in this movie. I don't know how old he actually was, but he looks so much older. Like it, it, and To the point where I was like... Did he have this kid in the sixties? Like I really thought that at one point. Like, I mean, hey, it works with the story, but like Robarts looks old in this. Right, movie. and they 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 sort of imply that it's like a. Actually, is it even said at one point that it's a May December mm, or I May November? I don't remember romance between it, there him may and, have been an implication that I missed, but <clears throat> I'm almost positive there's a line of dialogue in it. Yeah. Maybe the dark says or Cougar says or something that um, that's the the flunkiest Cougar. Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah. one of them says it sort of implies that you know he got her really like late in life, and she loves him right. despite his age. So, would you still recommend this for adults today? Yeah, yeah. I look. I mean, I haven't seen this movie in twenty years. Before right. like two weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, I enjoyed watching it still, and I I felt like it was a little hammy at times, maybe and. Like, it, it feels like an early 80s Disney movie, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, but I still enjoyed it. I still thought it was good. Yeah. It's one of my favorite VHS covers of all time with um yeah. the painted yeah. uh, price with his yeah. arms outstretched and, like, the light of the train. And I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's, it, it's such a great cover. Yeah, I agree. And a great title, too. Like, you know, I mean, I know that it's, you know, Bradbury paying homage sort of to Macbeth, but... Right. Just a great line when when Robart says that in the movie that something wicked this way sure. comes and then the doors open and there's Price like mm-hmm. standing there. It's, yeah. it's really well done. It is. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay. Okay, so number two on your list is Christine, directed by John Carpenter, starring Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, Alexandra Paul, Robert Prosky, Harry Dean Stanton, and Roberts Blossom. 
has a 69% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 63% from audiences. Do you want to go ahead and describe the plot of this movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so, you know, based on the um, the book by the same name by Stephen King, <clears throat> follows this car that rolls off the assembly line in the 50s, uh, Plymouth Fury, I think, mm. um, where there's, as it's on the assembly line, like a supervisor gets his hand chopped off and then another guy who sits in it like dies mysteriously um fast forward to the early 80s where arnie is this awkward nerdy um overly mothered guy who only has one friend who happens to be like this really popular football player named dennis um arnie finds the car and falls in love with it and buys it against his parents wishes and then spends a lot of his own time and effort fixing it up. Um, Arnie runs afoul of a gang of toughs that work in the auto shop at the school. Um, over time, like it's shown that he's developed this weird bond with the car. Um, and the car starts to <laughs> actively kill his enemies. Um, and then to the point where it kills him as well. In the end, and Dennis and the love interest, whose name I can't remember. Um, Lee. Yeah, Lee. Yeah. Uh, have to destroy the car. Um, although the coda, I guess, or the stringer scene at the end um, shows the car like still popping back into place like it can repair itself. It's a ridiculous premise. Um, King is in love with the idea of like inanim- inanimate objects being possessed. And that comes off a little better in like the written page when it's your imagination that's sort of propelling Mm it um where it's a little goofy in movie form but i really like this movie a lot like i think carpenter does a great job of presenting it with a certain air of menace um and does so more through arnie's change from you know, like this nebbish, bookish, shy teenager to this ladies' man almost to a psychotic who's willing to, like, do anything to save his one prized possession, even to the point of, like, destroying his relationship with his girlfriend. Um, I don't know. It's um, It's got some really great performances by some, you know, minor character actors like Robert's Blossoms, um, Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, the kid that plays Arnie does a good job, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's sort of like pent up, like seething rage that's mixed with resignation that changes into like overconfidence and he almost becomes a bully himself. Um, the kid that plays Dennis does a good job too. I think he's a really likable character mm-hmm. in that role. Um, the toughs, you know, the mutton chop leader and the presumably gay, um, like henchmen that end up getting killed um both are like like good roles good performances <clears throat> and really like the way that the car is filmed is carpenter does a good job you know taking a ridiculous premise and infusing like a good amount of menace to it i think and i really like the end scene um in the shop where they destroy the car with the front end loader or whatever and they're fighting it as it's like trying to like drag itself away from it to you know kill the girl because the girl is what got in the way and caused the owner to die um 
Yeah, it's just it maybe like fifteen minutes too long as a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I really like the performances. I really like the look of it. Um, it's just again for something that's one of King's more ridiculous like premise in terms of like full length novels. Like it's it's really well done and really enjoyable. Well, you already kind of addressed one of the criticisms a lot of the criticisms of this from respected reviewers at least are pretty middling if even if they're negative like there's still things they like about the movie and like nobody really just completely dismisses it um janet maslin makes the same point that you that it, a lot of these things that king writes about um like uh, demonic dogs, demonic cars comes off much better on the page than it does in film. But one point that she does make is that she thinks it's just not scary. I agree with that. I don't know that. I don't, I don't, I, I I saw Christine at a really young age. Like I probably saw this movie when I was like eight or nine and was not scared by it. Even at that early age. Yeah. But so that's fine. Yeah. Like as like a overt horror movie, it's maybe not that horrific. Mm. It works better as a psychological horror movie mm. and almost more from the point of view of it's got that like American graffiti esque feel, but still set in like the early eighties of, you know, the awkward teenage years yeah. and coming of age. And, you know, there's a really great scene later in the film, like probably about halfway through the film where um, Arnie's parents, are basically telling him like, you know, you got to get rid of the car. Like you have to change your attitude. And he snaps and grabs his father by the throat and then smacks him on the face. And it's just such like cool, cold menace Mm -hmm. from like the character that he is at the beginning that it really, it's, it's a really effective moment. And like, to me, it's fine that it's not really scary because Mm -hmm. it's more about, just the again like the The theme of it is obsession right so i mean by nature that's more psychological horror than it would be like you know jump scare horror you know menace horror necessarily like the radio coming on and playing like some scene appropriate song while it's trying to murder somebody not particularly scary although i tell you even though it's as silly as it is because it's possessed car I really love like the first time the Alexandra Paul character Lee when she's in the car and it kind of attacks her for the first time when right. she's in it and those white lights come up inside the car. Yeah, that's a really good scene. Like I, I really like the way that's done just, you know, from a from a filmmaking standpoint and how that's filmed and the special effects in the car and how they do all yeah, that. I think and it's like all all credit to Carpenter for fil- finding a way to film scenes like that. You know, when um Munchie or Mookie or whatever his name is, the possibly like yeah, gay uh-huh. kid gets killed. That's that's a pretty effective scene. Yeah. Like the car like forcing itself into the sure. the narrow alleyway in order to right. smash him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um even the scene where the um the main like gang leader gets killed, um, you know, at the the filling station, like when it's like ramming the other cars and stuff, is it's it's really well done. Like it's a good scene. So if if you can suspend your disbelief from that, like it's it's an enjoyable movie. Again, I really like the coming of age aspect of it. I like the I I love Robert's Blossom in it. Like I like that 
he's almost like passing along this curse that killed his brother and his brother's whole family almost maliciously like pushing it off on somebody else so he doesn't have to be responsible for it anymore um i like the guy that plays the uh, garage owner that starts out as like gruff and you know almost becomes like a father figure to arnie um and then ends up dying like sort of in a way like trying to defend the guy and yeah robert prosky um yeah that's the second time on this list right and, um, yeah, he's in the it's the third time on the podcast in general because he was in um thief oh right right he's the main villain in that um might be might be the tie probably now for like the, the most most movies on on this podcast so far which is odd yeah <clears throat> what an honor right uh uh-huh. So our good friend Dave Kerr, the Chicago reader, mm. says that Carpenter was the first filmmaker to grasp the basis of Stephen King's appeal, that he wasn't really a horror writer, but a Walt Disney-like spinner of psychological fables fables centered on adolescent sexual anxiety. But Carpenter's thematic self-consciousness, even backed by a supple visual style and exit performances by Keith Gordon as the high school nerd, can't entirely overcome a shaky, dramatic structure that sacrifices character logic to increasingly meaningless thrills. This 1983 feature was Carpenter's best film since Halloween, but still couldn't recapture the perfect balance of visceral shock and narrative integrity that defined his first success. So, hmm. fair from Dave Kerr, I think. Right, yeah. um, but how do you feel about like the way the story unfolds in terms of like the dramatic structure, I guess, like just as a narrative itself? Um, I'm okay with it. Like, I, I think that it really is a good psychological examination of, like you said, like obsession and this kid that had no confidence that suddenly is starting to find confidence and <clears throat> is becoming the things that he hated in other people so much mm-hmm. and that ultimately leads to his downfall and then, you know, his death, like yeah. in the end of the movie. But <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, again, it's. I think if you can get past the premise itself and you can suspend your disbelief, I think it's a fun movie to watch. Um, I think Carpenter is an immensely talented director. Um, and I think he does a really good job with the, with the source material and making it something greater than it would have been in somebody else's hands. Like it doesn't, there's scenes that are maybe a little goofy in it, but it doesn't ever come off as parody or, Uh, tongue-in-cheek like i think it's there's a certain amount of like weight that's given to the idea that this car is possessed and you know i i i appreciate that and even though again like to your point it's not necessarily scary like it still is it's it's effective and it's enjoyable do you think it's predictable that's another common like i can't even answer that because i you know i don't know I think I had seen this movie before I read the book. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, you know what's going to happen. Like, sure. That's you... a, yeah. I mean, I, I I think it's probably predictable. Like, right. What's going to happen in it? I mean, isn't like, so if it, if so if it's predictable, it would raise the idea. Do they prolong things too much at times? If it's predictable, like especially in the second half of the movie. I, see, I think that's. Imp- I, I don't know. I think that's that's necessary. If I if I think any part of the movie is too long, I think it might be the first third of the movie, hmm. like before any of the real supernatural elements are introduced. Right. In the idea of like 
maybe there's a little too much build up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once you realize that it is a supernatural entity, um, I don't think it's I don't think it's over long. I don't think it's overdone. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that's like considered classic that if you look at it, it is kind of predictable. You know, right. what I mean, and this not not to bring this up like repeatedly, but isn't Macbeth kind of predictable? Like, don't you know that he's going to just die in the end? Like, they tell you that, basically, from the very right. beginning, that's what's going right. to happen. And yeah. it's just, how do you get to that point? Like, and sometimes, right. even though you know what the end result is, it's like, how do you get from A to Z that makes it interesting? Sure. And I think Carpenter does a good job with that. And I think that all the actors in this movie do a good job of, like, supporting that. Um. So, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with that criticism. I think it's probably, like, the most kind criticism I've ever heard from Dave Kerr. So, that's a little surprising. But yeah. Although the implication is that he didn't like the thing in that because that's 82. Right. I don't understand that. Like the thing is, in my opinion, Carpenter's masterpiece. I can't remember. Dave Kerr might've been the criticism for the thing. Actually, if I go back and look, that could have been like the start of Dave Kerr. Probably Um, probably made me really angry. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Okay. Any final thoughts on this? No, you know, this is a movie where, if it's on, you know, you'll be entertained by it. Yeah. I don't know that it's one that I would say. And it's it's so weird because, like, I would tell you that you really should go and watch Sleepaway Camp. And that I call that number four. And <clears throat> this is number two. And I would say that, like, if you have the chance to watch it, mm-hmm. you'll enjoy it. But I don't know that you should go out of your way to see it. But I think it's just a really competent, complete, well-done movie by a director that I think is in about a 15-ish year span where he's at his his peak of being, like, Making really good movies. Well, I would think the difference between the recommendation there is that Sleepaway Camp is a staple of the horror genre that pretty much, if you're into horror and you haven't seen it, you probably need to see it. Where right. Christine is a, like you said, competent movie that isn't doing anything necessarily new or f- fresh even, but it's really well done in right. what it does. Yeah. I don't I don't know. But you don't have to go see it to right. be... Yeah, I, I would I would never list Christine as like an essential horror film, but I think it's it's definitely competent and worth watching right. if you have the chance to see it. Okay. All right. So number one on your list is Video Drone, directed by David Cronenberg, starring James Woods, Sonia Smiths, and Deborah Harry. It has a seventy nine percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and eighty percent from audiences. This is our first Cronenberg on the list. Is it really that, that we've done? Yep. Hmm. Um. We've talked off air about doing a Cronenberg list for since we started the podcast, I think. But yeah. um, but so you want to go ahead and explain what this movie is about, <clears throat> and then tell us what you like about it so much. I don't know if I can necessarily explain what the movie's about. Um, James Woods is a director of a TV station in Canada. Um, I mean, he's kind of into, like, softcore porn and violence, like, as his, the things that he airs. Um, he finds this... Well, it's kind of set in the future, a little bit of a futuristic setting. Yeah. A little bit, like, an alternate, like, reality, like, a little bit into the future where television has gone kind of off the rails in terms of how much sex and violence is on it. Right, right. It's, it's just all about titillation. Yeah. Um finds this signal of this channel that's coming from like Malaysia, I think mm-hmm. where it's just, 
like people getting murdered basically on air, like tortured and murdered. Um, he wants to, or he's told that he needs to find this and like, or no, he's told that he has to play this as programming by his director. Um, he gets in a relationship with the Debbie Harry character, um, that turns into like sadomasochism. Um, she disappears. Uh, so he's trying to find her. Um, turns out that the state that it's actually being filmed in Pittsburgh and it was like, he was set up to project it because it causes tumors to grow in the brains of the people that see it. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to control people through the signal. Right. Um, there's a lot of like Cronenberg body horror with like his guts turning into like a, a VCR basically. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's, it's Cronenberg. Right. It's early ish enough Cronenberg where I think it's maybe his most experimental movie, mm. like maybe uh, up until maybe like existence or something, but um, early on, like the one that has the least solid narrative and the most like visceral special effects in terms of the body horror. Um, it's really about. God, who knows what it's really about? I guess the fact that TV is... Television and media is, like, infecting you and making people addicted in a lot of ways, like, to the gratuitousness of what's being shown on television, which is a weird stance for somebody like Cronenberg to take, because Cronenberg is definitely, like, a director who does not shy from gratuitous violence or sex in his movies like right. he's really about like i mean he doesn't shy away from nudity or well i think one of the things definitely is like the idea of mind control in this that he's getting at yeah and that i guess that if there's no substance behind the things you're seeing right that that's what's like rotting your brain almost what's causing you to become like a mindless zombie and ultimately like, quote unquote like killing you in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um I mean, there's there's a lot going on here. I mean, yeah. if I there's hints of a lot of things going on here. I, I I think yeah, we did talk about this. Um, we talked about it off air, and one of my overall, I thought this is a very good noir style thriller set in some sort of alternate reality fantasy setting. And if very, I'm just looking at the text of the film, right? If I'm looking at the subtext of it, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. If you're watching it, but I don't know if that subtext ends up being solidified into anything that has a message necessarily. So I, I, I think it kind of does, and I think it's <clears throat> on one hand, I think that maybe Cronenberg is a little too abstract with his message in this movie if that's the right word yeah but i also think he's a little too ham-fisted with his message as well i mean what's the dude's name like brian oblivion or something like that I mean, right like, yeah, yeah you know it's it's it, it's videodrome is like a front for a political movement and it's like yeah. made you know to affect the viewer mm-hmm. and that is you know 
like that's a very like blatant subtext or whatever that the government's trying to control you and sure i mean obviously this movie is made at the beginning of the actual like video revolution in our country right um where you know betamax and it existed for a few years vhs is coming into its own yeah people have the ability to watch whatever they want Mm -hmm. cable television is a couple years old at this point Mm -hmm. um like super tv and comcast or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, where you have 24-7 programming in some places, and a lot of it is that MTV generation style, like, just images and images and images and things that are just, like, projected at you. And still so new that people were interrupting signals at times, still. Because you have that whole, like, Max Headroom thing that happens during, was that a football game? Do you remember this? Where, like, somebody, I think it was in Chicago, it was a football game that was going on, and somebody actually hacked the signal through, I think, NBC or something like that. And it was just the somebody in a Max Headroom mask, like, laughing and, like, saying, like, like uh, it was some kind of political message they were trying to get across. I sort of remember that. And, uh, I mean, so it was it was to a point where people could, like... And this sort of is Max Headroom's point... Anyway. Which is why they use the mask. Sure. I mean, Matt, Matt Max Headroom is a sanitized version of what Videodrome is about. Sure. In all honesty. Sure. <clears throat> Without, like, the blatant, like... My point just and... being that the idea in this movie that, right. like, you know, that they're getting signals from different places, you know, transmissions from different places. Um, it was pretty realistic that things could, like, you know, be hacked. You know, like, signals could be hacked back then. <clears throat> so, in the end, in order to defeat whatever he has to leave the old flesh... Which I think is another, um, I, I think another point of it is that, like, you're just becoming, like, part of the media, in mm-hmm. essence. Like, because it's so omnipresent yeah. that you're leaving behind, like, the trappings of the past in a lot of ways and becoming, like, part of this omnipresent world of, like, and I the, and I think the ending is that you're repeating the actions of right, what you so see on television. So influenced, yeah, because he does shoot himself. Right, because it shows the whole suicide thing happen, and then it plays out outside the television screen the exact same way. Yeah. So he's just repeating what he sees on television yeah. at that point. Long live the new flesh. Right. Been awesome. Um, um, I mean, I think it's. I think it's still. I think. I think it's way ahead of its time in some ways. It is because it's still bringing up. It's bringing up things that we're just dealing with now in the past five years. Like, you're talking about, like, I mean, people have been talking about, like, media, like, controlling right. populaces for a long time. But, I mean, as we're getting into things like Sinclair Broadcasting, and I'm sure you've seen, like, the YouTube clip of, like, how everybody in the Sinclair Broadcasting uh, local affiliates, like, are being told to, like, read the exact same thing. And it's, like, there's YouTube videos of all these people just talking and saying the exact same thing in all these different cities. And... I mean, it's it's certainly that's that's going on in this. The idea that there's competing narratives that people war through media, right? Through creating their own narrative of things, including the Oblivion and his daughter, right. and like the 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 Videodrome side, like that's and and how we don't know what's true, <laughs> like that's being brought up here. Um, yeah, that's um like the transmissions of like the that that is picked up for Videodrome of like the torture porn aspect of things i mean it's like now we just call that stuff like stuff of the dark web or red rooms and the, well, the those inter- kind of things like one of the most interesting things about that is something that also is like kind of prevalent today 
And it's the idea that you're seeing this pirate transmission from across the world mm-hmm. of this thing that's not something like from here. Like you're like being titillated from something from far away. Mm-hmm. But it's really just being filmed in like fucking Pittsburgh. You know, I mean, it's right. not. Yeah, it's 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 like it's people are really dying in it. Like, I think that's established at one point that these people sure. are really like being killed, yeah. but that it's like being done on purpose. To try and like build this mysterious feeling to it, so you, you want to watch it. Like you're not sure watching something that's happening next door. It's like you're detached from it, right? And I think that we get into that mindset too. Like, you know, you look on Facebook where people are so eager to join the cause of like saying, you know, I support like Notre Dame and I support right. whatever. Like whenever anything happens, like they want to be a part of it, but because they're so removed from it, yeah. Um. I I think it's I think it's an amazing looking movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really uncomfortable movie to watch. Mm-hmm. Um I guess I guess from a body horror perspective, uh like Dead Ringers comes after this and The Fly is after this and both of those are are pretty horrific, yeah. but <clears throat> like Cronenberg really just has a way of like showing the violation of the human body in a way that makes you incredibly uncomfortable. Yes. Um, uh, he, the, the more uncomfortable part to me about his body horror, which I've used to really be sickened by. And I guess <clears throat> I don't know what's happened, but it's like, it doesn't, doesn't quite gross me out as much as it used to like viscerally. But um, the way he sexualizes it so much is one of the more uncomfortable yeah. things to see sometimes because you were being kind when you were talking about how his you know, his stomach becomes a VCR, but I mean, it's obviously like designed to look like a vagina. Right. And, uh, well, he's being fucked by the media and like, he's right. Being, I, he's, he's being impregnated with this thing that's going to control him basically. And and that's the kind of thing where it's like, we were, uh, it's like, I hope that's not the joke because it's like, it's kind of childish to me. If that's the joke is the idea of like, I, I don't know what I don't I don't know what his deal is there, but if that's all it is, it seems kind of childish to I me. I mean, I said it in a really the, crude way, but I think that's I think that's the intent. Yeah, if that's it though, it's like I, I just think it's childish. Cronenberg is all about like the penetration of the body by right. the right. alien or yeah. you know ex- external the, force, right? Than, usually non corporeal. It's usually again like symbolism in some way. But I mean, I mean that's like yeah. in. Um, rabid it's 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 a thing and the brood she's impregnated you know what i mean like it's very much about like something from the outside coming into you yeah that changes you and it's true here too right um that leads to like wood's ultimate like destruction basically Mm -hmm. or him murdering at least like all of his colleagues but i don't know it's it's very like when when you look at like near future or movies that take place in like an alternate earth mm-hmm. to me this is up there with blade runner in terms of like the vision for the world mm-hmm. and where it's close enough that you can recognize it but far enough away where it's alien sort of mm-hmm. but it makes you uncomfortable in the fact yeah. that it's close enough where you can recognize it's it. it's so close that it makes you, yes i agree with that it's, but it, it's it's not that it's it's barely different right but it's not so hyper stylized something like demolition man where oh, it's sure. like <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, the great fast food wars, like 
They those haven't happened yet in video room. Right. Um, three seashells. Yeah. What one? Taco Bell. Taco, Taco Bell won the yeah. won the won the fast food wars. That's yeah. right. It's probably Chick Fil A now, but Chick Fil A didn't really exist back yeah. then. Um, oh, it will be if they remake it. Yeah. Right. We just never be able to eat on Sunday. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I find that really uncomfortable, and I also find that really compelling. And I think that if you ask me to name my top five Cronenberg movies, Videodrome is not in my top five Cronenberg movies. Hmm. It's probably six, maybe. Hmm. It might push into five, but it, it would be tough. Um, hmm. But what's number one? Existence. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> fucking crash Crash, yeah Yeah. 90s Cronenberg is not my is not my friend um he makes a good comeback though yeah uh the brood is probably one I I really love the brood yeah or or scanners maybe I love scanners um scanners is a very similar idea too sure just less like internalized and more externalized I guess I don't know yeah um yeah it's James Woods is great in it. Mm-hmm. Um, James Woods, who's kind of like sort of dropped out of like public favor in the past decade. <clears throat> um, still like the height of his power here, I think. Um, Always looking like he's 45. Right. And just like sweaty and <laughs> infected with something. Um, mm-hmm. Really good performance, like as brief as it is by by Debbie Harry. You know, coming off her popularity as like a pop icon in like the late seventies and early eighties, um, beautiful woman. Like I, I, I love Debbie Harry so much. <clears throat> it's it's a difficult movie to watch. It makes this list because, this, so this is where I had trouble because I was kind of weighing, how do you say that the Hunger is not a B movie, but Videodrome is, and to me, like the Hunger feels. It feels like something that even though there's like an art house feel to it, you would go to the theater and watch. Videodrome actually does accomplishes as a film what the like the subtext of the film is, which it feels like. The first time I saw Videodrome, it felt like something I probably shouldn't be watching. Mm. Like it, it felt like something that <clears throat> like this is a thing that like no one is supposed to see, really. And it's it's hard to explain like. <clears throat> without like you know showing you scenes or screenshots or like watching mm-hmm. the movie yourself like why it feels that way but it, it has that feeling of almost like a snuff film in a way mm-hmm. and it and the fact that it ends with him like you know killing right. himself sure sort of plays into that but you know it, it feels dirty and it feels voyeuristic and it feels uneasy you know it, mm-hmm. it doesn't it's not a comfortable movie to watch and i think that like a movie that can affect you like that <clears throat> in the same way that <coughs> pardon me in the same way that like I say, you know, that I can't fully support all the stuff in sleepaway camp, but I think you should still watch it. I feel the same way here. Like, I don't know that it's, I think it teeters on being a classic of like modern cinema just because of its audacity and its ideas. And it's, I don't know, like it's just, whatever like how audacious is a good word to describe it i mean this is definitely like a younger director who's trying to shock while at the same time trying to make people think at the same time 
it's also in a lot of ways from like from the perspectives and I I love David Cronenberg and I think he's one of the most important directors of like the modern era. I mean, you've got it's really the culmination of a lot of ideas that he had kind of made with um his films prior to this, you know. Mm-hmm. So you have like Shivers and Rabid and The Brood and Scanners and all of those things combined, like the idea of killing through the media and mm-hmm the outside forces penetrating you and changing you and the fact that the whole populace can be infected by these things and it changes society in general. Like all of those thoughts appear in his previous movies. And it's like, this is his, I don't know, like, like his, 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 his masterpiece of like those ideas all coming together. And the funny thing is after video drum, you know, he goes on to direct like a Stephen King adaptation because he does the dead zone and then it's the fly after that. So it's a remake. So it's, it's funny because I wonder if like he really felt maybe almost like bereft of ideas at that point. Like he had done everything that was in his brain. Like he had just put it all there Mm -hmm. in this movie. And even though like, I, I think the dead zone is, is underrated. Um, and this uh, dead zone is this year too. It's 83. It is 83. Yep. Um, so that's another one that probably could have made the list. Cause I, mm-hmm. I, I like the dead zone quite a bit. Um, I, I think it's a little flat sometimes. It is. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's fine. Movie. Really, really good performances. Yeah. Like Walken's really good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the fly is just such like a, such like a visual masterpiece and such great performances, but a remake, you know, and like sure. his, his aesthetic on, this like old chestnut of an idea of like the scientists, like science gone wrong, right. which really is like his whole, you know, his mm-hmm. whole thing. Yeah. Um, but from a much more like existential perspective mm-hmm. um, and video drum is just such a good culmination of those earlier movies. So even though like, I would argue that I like rabid the brood and scanners better than video drum as movies. Mm-hmm. I think the video drum is probably the more powerful film out of all of them because it's not as cut and dry as those movies are. Right. Um, even though the subtext of those movies is much more complex than that. It seems on the surface, like Videodrome is just such like a, it's a movie I think that you really can talk about a lot. And it's something that I think because of its, I think it almost like, it almost is unable to like reach the heights that it wants to reach. For some reason, and I'm not sure like what holds it back. I would have to really think about that a lot. But and my contention about exactly that idea is that I think that the I think he gets lost in the subtext to actually bring it home completely all the way of what he's trying to the message he's trying to get across. In yeah, the I mean that that might be you. You might be right. It's like I said. I think like the plot. <clears throat> The, the plot you can understand the movie and like what the actual events of the movie are but that subtext gets lost at times and it doesn't the subtext and the plot do not meet in the same area where I think that's what great films do yeah, a I lot agree of times Look, and I, mean, I think, again, and I think I mean, that this just slightly misses something to where that doesn't happen so you're left with these question marks. And I think those question marks is the thing that just puts it right under right, sure. greatness. 
again, uh, and, and I, I think it's a really good movie. But. I I think that Cronenberg has made great movies. Yeah, and to me, this falls slightly under right. those movies, right. like just right outside that range. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, he's his adaptation of Naked Lunch is mm-hmm. is a is a really very similar to Videodrome, where it's like really powerful really visually arresting and maybe just a little flawed to the point where you can't call it great. But when a director is as talented as Cronenberg, this is the, the, this was my point with the keep as well. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes I think it's more interesting to see the slight miss or the almost movie. Now Cronenberg makes some shit too. I mean, I dislike that's a a nineties period though. that really starts to happen a lot. I think, I mean, well, I think he like, I mean, because he makes Dead Ringers, and then it's um, Naked Lunch and M. Butterfly. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, I would really have to think about Cronenberg a lot. To yeah, I, I, this is a much longer conversation. But I, my my current theory is that it's this stuff about how people are affected by violence in media is a, is a theme early on that kind of ends here. Right, video he, and then in the '90s, he, you're right. He goes back to a lot of other things, like you know, adaptations, all those kind of things. In yeah. the '90s, he comes back with what's the link between violence and sex? And well, Crash a, is also about the obsession with fuck. How to say it? Like fetishism, almost. Sure, and. I mean, existence is just back to pure body horror, and I don't, I just don't think it works as a movie. But like, he really finds himself after that too, though, with like history of violence and. Um, There's a lot of sexualization in existence, though. Like, I mean, right. like the, the, he's still working out those ideas, and I don't think it actually reaches its. Th- that just kind of falls flat, and then when he comes back in the 2000s, he's dealing with how violence not only interacts with sex at times, but it's more about how violence creates duality right. in people. And I think that's where he comes back and he's really strong again because he's worked out that sex and violence isn't the struggle necessarily. It's what it does to the person and how that causes them to interact with other things in their life, including yeah. sex. And I'm, I, I'm, like the, so. the ultimate culmination of like his entire career really is the scene with Viggo Mortensen and uh, Maria Bella on the stairs yes. in history of violence yes. where it's like two fully formed characters that are married, that are married combining that all of a sudden realize, you know, that the one doesn't even know the other one. Right. So it's kind of like this really uncomfortable, almost rape scene, but then it's that still turns like, into that turns into consensual. sex. yeah, it's just, it's rough consensual sex, but it's like, it starts out. I mean, and it's, and it's visceral enough that scene that, there was like a half dozen people that walked out of the theater when I yeah, saw. Yeah, it's it's a really uncomfortable. Like scene. people just walked out. Like, but it's it's um, him making the same point that he's made his whole career within the confines of the human existence, right? Without having to make it right something alien sure. or supernatural. Not not to get too far away from video games, yeah, but, but yeah. just like a really really fantastic examination of all of those ideas encapsulated in one like two and a half minute scene that is incredibly powerful when you watch yes. it. Um, and Agreed. I think that all those Agreed. ideas are in Videodrome. It's just that 
you know, he's so obsessed with like the sci-fi aspect mm-hmm. of those things and mm-hmm. portraying these ideas as something, you know, like alien being forced into your body, you know, yeah. which, which is horrifying. And as far as like body horror, he's goes, obsessed with the calls during this period. Yeah. I think it's like where later in his life, he's, obs- he's, he's more obsessed with the effect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Anyway, Videodrome is definitely worth watching. Yes. Um, agreed. I think it's on the Criterion channel if you want to get the Criterion oh, really? channel. Okay. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Because a lot of Cronenberg stuff is on Criterion. Okay. Or at least enough of it. Yeah. That was another thing I ordered through Google. Okay, so, um, yes, I think this is a really solid movie. It'll make you uncomfortable, I think, <laughs> if, if you're not used to um, body horror whatsoever. But... Um, although I think this is tame compared to some of his other stuff with body horror. I, I agree. Um, like the fly is much worse to me. <laughs> the fly is one of the most difficult movies of his to watch. It's actually not on the Criterion channel, only scanners in the brood. Okay. Um, I watched it on my Criterion collection DVD. So, right. Okay. Um, so that's the end of our list for tonight. Uh, next week we'll be back with the top five science fiction movies of the 1990s. And then we will um, be going into a couple other things that we'll be doing later in the month that we'll tell you about later. Uh, Frank started a new job where he's going to be traveling, so we're going to have to work out some changes and some dates. Mm. Um, But we'll definitely be doing the, um, at the end of the month, uh, we'll be doing some stuff in between in May. We'll figure that out. We'll definitely end up doing 1984 at um, at the end of the month still. 1984 is a pretty good list. Is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm excited. I'm working my way through the sci-fis now. Mm. So uh, please remember, uh, if you could uh, subscribe, like us, share us, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on Podbean, whether it's on whatever podcatcher um, podcast app that you're using, we would really appreciate that. We've had a number of new subscribers again um, to the podcast and we really appreciate anybody giving us a chance and those loyal listeners who um, are listening every week. So thank you very much and have a great weekend. Yep. Have a good night.